If you've been with us so far in this season of Copy Room Conversations, you'll know I'm interrupting the general flow with a short season to help us ease back into the thinking and doing of work. Every August on CRC, there is a season where we talk about a book I hope you'll read. This season, it happens to be about my book, Nothing's Missing, a year of reckoning, release, and remembering who I am. Come September, we'll be back with season four of Copy Room Conversation, dedicated to the notion of letting go of imperfection and normalizing joy. Not coincidentally, two of the main themes of Nothing's Missing. This episode opens with a quote from two educators. First is my friend Tovi. You may remember from season one, we interviewed Tovi about our times together as young teachers and our time together now as middle-aged women still in service to education. Also, we've got a quote from my friend Nora. I coached Nora when she was a part of the Hollyhock Fellowship at Stanford University, and she's become a friend as well as a mother in the last few years. Both of these folks were kind enough to read the book and share some thoughts. I share those thoughts with you today, along with the story from a chapter titled, Hear the Call. First, we'll hear from Tovi. She said, This book is laced with up-close vulnerability and wisdom. Nora shared, honest and vulnerable, poetic and funny. It's a peculiar thing of the world to go on spinning, no matter what kind of heartbreak is happening. Sue Monk Kidd, The Secret Lives of Bees, and the opening quote to the chapter called Hear the Call. The story I'm going to tell in this episode is a story of me in the fourth grade. We had a reading contest, and looking back 30 years later, it taught me some things about myself then, but more importantly, some things about myself now. Here's that story. When I was in the fourth grade, our class had a reading contest. The student who read the most pages over winter vacation would get a new box of school supplies on the first day back. If there was one thing I liked more than reading, it was school supplies. I'm not at all what someone would call competitive, but in this case, nothing was going to stand between me and winning. I had two teachers in the fourth grade. It was an experiment with two classes sharing one large space, allowing kids to flow back and forth between lessons at their own pace, providing rich learning opportunities for them in the process. My teachers were Susan and Bob, two people who had a 1970s vibe in most ways, including their dislike of the false sense of authority established by adults through the titles of Mr. and Mrs. After announcing the contest and describing the coveted prize, Susan stepped back to reveal the shelves of books from which to choose. Because we were a combination class, there were 60 of us, easily 100 books laid before us. While the readers scrambled to be the first to pick the longest books, and the kids less interested in reading hustled for the shorter books, I sat back and let them all choose. One by one, the students went up to choose their book. As they did, Susan gave each a book bag, a canvas one with a happy face on it, and a slogan that said something like, I love to read. Nicole, come up and get your book, Bob called. I'd rather wait until after school if that's okay, I replied. That way I can take my time to choose from what's left. Whatever works for you, replied Bob, falling easily into the laid-back way of being that allowed the little people their own autonomy. 
As the day wound down and the bell signaled for everyone to leave, I got my lunchbox and my sweater and I headed toward the books. Susan, I said quietly. I was a social girl, maybe even a little flirty for a nine-year-old, but painfully earnest when it came to serious matters. And to me, most things were serious matters. Yes, Nicole, are you ready to pick your book? Well, yes, but I wonder about something. If the goal is to read the most pages, would it be okay if I took more than one book? She raised her eyebrows, as if to say, well, you little devil. Instead, she said, of course. With that, I took every book that I could fit into my new book bag. That smiley face was bursting at the seams. In addition to being rather serious for a typical nine-year-old, I was also very thin. I was average height, but my legs took up two-thirds of my body, and if that wasn't enough, my limbs were like sticks. Bird legs, I think I was called on more than one occasion. To make matters worse, my mom always liked me to wear dresses to school, with matching bows, of course. So there I was in December, two bird legs sticking out of a dark green dress, green ribbons braided into my hair, with my stick arms lugging a lunchbox, a sweater, and a bag stuffed with books. I got to the corner of where I needed to cross the street to meet my babysitter, feeling like my arm might fall off. The kind of sensation you get when you're about to lose feeling, but not quite, so it hurts like hell. The crossing guard looked somewhere between amused and concerned. That's quite a heavy load for a little lady like yourself, he said, holding up the stop sign with one hand, calling me forth with his other, whistle half hanging out of his mouth and his crinkly blue eyes smiling at me. Yeah, I have some work to do over vacation, I replied. Well, good luck with all that, but let someone help you with all those books, for goodness sake. That's too much burden for one little girl to carry. Okay, I said, with zero intention of keeping my word. I may have had stick arms and bird legs and crazy ribbon hair, but I was strong, and no one was going to make me think I couldn't handle carrying all those books. When I got home later that night, I released my arms burden onto the bed in a bit of a huff. Would that crossing guard have said those things to me if I was a boy, I asked myself. I thought not. I stayed in that bed with my books for three days, emerging only for the bathroom and a little food, every time returning quickly to my stacks. On the third day, I was done. I returned to school that January triumphant. I had indeed read the most pages, and that school supply box was all mine. That memory has stayed with me all these years for a number of reasons. Bob and Susan's respect for my peers and me, how they turned reading into something to be met with gusto, the box that now holds school supplies for my students when they win little contests in my classes, and the kindly old gentleman who took interest in my heavy load, advising me to get help and wishing me well on my journey. And what a journey it's been. Not until this year did I realize his advice to lighten my load is now 36 years in the making. 36 years of me carrying way more than was ever necessary. 36 years I've armed myself with accomplishments, achievements, order, and control. All in the name of what? In my life's smiley-faced book bag are countless items I carry with me, most of them based on fear. It's not just the fear of not being special. It's also even more irrational and heart-wrenching fears. They go on and on, these imagined tragedies, followed closely by my plans for survival, all attempts to prepare me for anything that could possibly happen. This is how some people struggle with anxiety. We spin and spin until we collapse under the weight of the stories we tell ourselves. We are exhausted, but we can't let anyone know. 
We put a smile on our faces as big as the smile on that book bag while our minds race and our backs break. We want to let it all go, but we fear that if we do, we will be unprepared for what awaits us. It's killing us, but we have to do it, don't we? That's what I thought. All these years and all these accomplishments and all these plans for survival, and where am I? I'm in a lovely home, in a respectable career with two gorgeous children, but I'm also in an emotional distress I wouldn't wish on anyone. I'm so tired of fighting for myself. My heart hurts. My body hurts. My mind is exhausted. I have to lay down some of my load, open my arms wide, embrace the faith I say I have. I have to stop planning for trouble. I have to stop achieving at the sake of my own health. I have to trust the people I love and myself. I have to let go and surrender to whatever will be. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of a thousand things. But I refuse to internalize those fears anymore. When I'm hurting, I have to share it. When I need help, I have to ask for it. I'm going to release what I can and look the other things straight in the eye and say, I won't be afraid of you anymore. This is a big step for me, and one I don't take lightly, one about which I'm sure I'll falter. But I have to remember that, even as strong as I am, I'm not strong enough to carry the weight of the world. I have to put my book bag down. Thank you for listening to Season 3, with episodes released on Sundays and Wednesdays in August, each one dedicated to a different chapter in the book, Nothing's Missing. Come September, we'll be back with Season 4 of Copy Room Conversations, dedicated to the notion of letting go of imperfection and normalizing joy. Not coincidentally, two of the main themes of Nothing's Missing. If you're interested in purchasing a copy of Nothing's Missing, you can get it anywhere you buy your paperbacks, ebooks, and audiobooks. 15% of all net profits I earn from these books and other speaking engagements and workshops is donated to Together Rising, an organization dedicated to women and families that uses local resources and knowledge to drive decisions that serve others. Learn more at togetherrising.com. To learn more about my work, please visit nicoleluciani.com.